Hello everybody and welcome to Brumvagoon, cycling made inclusive and as well the gravel whatever roads you will not you know what I mean actually but after all this time we're talking about more than one month talking about off-road mountain bikes and everything like this you know already what I mean right I hope that you enjoyed the drop to flat miniseries now we are gonna get back into the regular show regular it was never so regular i always talking about seven hundred thousand thing pizza 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 and <laughs> sorry i love this meme on the internet and uh, so yeah if we can call it regular let's call it regular anyways today uh, we are gonna talk about products and durability and sustainability with a great really great guest but first of all i have to say thank you to komoot for supporting sorry i'm laughing as crazy as i can um where was I? Yes. Um, I also mistake completely English. I completely lost the conversation. Uh, where was I? I was talking about the great support that I'm receiving from Komoot. And uh, just remember that if you want to get into the Komoot world and you are new on that, you can just go to komoot.com slash G, like Greenland, and get your free region writing broom into the code form and then you can get as i was saying an extra region and there you can have all the possibilities that you can get with yes this map possibility so offline maps on your phone and turn by turn navigation especially now that the spring is out and you want to go out and explore and i'm going out and explore all the possibility of my hay fever people is crazy i'm getting more antihistaminic now that you know the period of my life and that's super great uh, that's another story though remember that you can listen to this podcast subscribe and as well rate and comment it and this will help me jumping up in all the charts and just remember that you can find it everywhere apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, spotify spreaker don't forget spreaker it's everything here just continue doing on this side i just want to mention two more things before starting with the regular chat also because it's lasted for a bit of time so it's a good chunk of conversation Let's move it in this way. First of all, shift cycling culture. On Saturday, there's gonna be the clunkers ride. So, uh, Saturday. In Saturday, I'm gonna organize it here in Zurich. And I'm gonna go out with some friends with some uh, uh, K, and everybody wants to join, of course. If you're around Zurich, just give me a shout. But it's gonna be a cake and coffee, coffee and cake ride with my amazing Peugeot Champagne. That was my first bicycle in the old, old life and actually drove me for my first bike packing trip in Albania. If you want to know more about my Albanian trip, give me a shout. I need to find some photos here around. Then, if you want, if you are everywhere else around the world, just remember, follow Shift Cycling Culture on the Instagram or Shift Cycling Culture on Google. You'll find it out and you'll find the website and there you can see where a clunker ride is organized and you can take part of it. Otherwise, if it's not, just you can organize your own and collect some friends, use an old bike of yours, take it out from your cellar and just enjoy an amazing bike because every bike is a bike and you can use it however you want second thing that i want to mention is something that makes this noise is actually the sea watch so you know that in this period talking about 2020 2021 there wasn't there still a lot of talking about covid well 
I truly believe that we need to pass over this phase. That's why I don't like to talk about that so much. There is already too many information about that. Most of them are fake. But every time that you mention it or whatever, probably we are getting into a sad mood. But in order to make it more fun, all the time that somebody, myself or my guests, are mentioning COVID into this podcast or wherever of my publications, I am dropping a coin, in this case it's one Swiss franc, into my COVID swear jar. This money are going to be collected and I'm going to donate to a charity called Sea Watch, who is saving lives in the central mediterranean all the refugees that are moving from africa to europe and it's not that easy actually to pass this part of the sea especially with the regulation that are around right now uh actually association like sea watch is taking care of them saving in them and rescuing them so at the end of the year i'm gonna send out all the money into my COVID jar to them. If you want to do the same, just go on seawatch.org, I think, or look for Seawatch on the Google, and then you can support them as well. You don't need to mention Bloomwagon. It's just a great cause that I would love everybody to support. I think that's it. Yes, let's jump into the conversation. Uh, my great friend Max uh, told me at a certain point that he was receiving a lot of... Uh, funny, funky, I would say funky, messages on his Instagram account because people were actually blaming him of having on his own clothing, cycling clothing, cycling apparels that were pretty pricey and uh, there was something cheaper around. I'm not going to go too much into that. Well, we said, okay, why don't we sit down and we understand what does it mean producing garments and uh, apparels that are durable, that can be flexible in terms of repairing and can be sustainable. We, he put me, Max put me in contact with Ian, Ian Martin from 7Mesh, and we had exactly this conversation. It was a lovely conversation. We talked really about everything related to the production of that, how to build up a company from the ground that is really sustainable and doing something fun and doing something that lasts forever. Because that's a quote that I would love to put here, but you're going to listen it directly from Ian's voice. Producing new things and buying new things every second month or every year is not sustainable. So the best thing that we can do is producing something that is durable and is repairable. I will start from here. I will talk to you at the end. Well, I can say that I have been spending kind of already half an hour, talk maybe a little more. What do you think, Ian? It's more, right? It's 45 minutes. I think it's a little bit more, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so having an amazing and lovely conversation with Ian Martin. You are founder, co-founder and vice president of product of 7Mesh, if I... That's right. Yeah, it sounds kind of like a big title for a small Absolutely. company, but yes. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, seven mesh. So why I'm having this amazing conversation? Long story short to everybody. Uh, I know, and I was telling this to Jan, so it's pretty clear. It's not a surprise. I don't want to offend you. I know seven mesh now for not more than six, seven months, probably less than one year, because my really good friend, Andrea, that you all know out there, told me, look, if you want something for winter and if you want something in Goretex, there is only one brand that you need to have a look to, and it's 7Mesh. Then you got amazing experience with your customer service, with your repairing service and everything. And then I got to know as well that my other super good friends, that is Max, Max Riese, uh, that actually we met at the Silk Road Monterey a couple of years ago, is now one of your ambassadors. So we had a talk, this and that, and I said, okay, look, I need to talk with somebody at 7Mesh because they're doing something super cool and they're pretty solidly close to 
my way of thinking that probably we need to talk about products in the way that all here in the broom wagon we like to talk so sustainability reparability reparability durability and all these amazing keywords and so we arranged a couple of things and now i'm here talking with Hian. So, how you doing, man? Good. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, I've listened to a bunch of your uh, podcasts, and they they're fascinating. They're uh, they're really well done. So, thank you so much for uh, inviting us uh, here to talk about Seven Mesh. Yes. No. Yeah, I can tell you. Thanks a lot for for the amazing words. That's something that really pushes me for uh, on doing this overwhelming job that is talking about cycling in general but talking about my point of views in my own way and i'm super happy that actually people like you are so enthusiastic on talking with me about these things this gives me a lot of joy and yeah i'm super happy for that yeah great thanks yeah. um i just want to ask you a thing straight away so is ian or ian oh what's the best uh, ian yeah ian. ian okay yeah where are you now? Uh, because I know that uh, I'm in Whistler. I'm in Whistler, BC, right now. Um, I kind of share my time um, between Whistler and Squamish. Uh, our head office is in Squamish, but uh, I'm kind of floating around a little bit uh, with my family. So that's kind of fun. This year has obviously been a, a wacky one. So mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've got limited people in the office. Not that we're a big office, but um, we kind of you know limit the team as much as possible being in there so uh, we kind of stagger days and things like that so it's been fun so you're also spending your time in this kind of home office policy yeah for sure so i'm trying to do you know mondays and wednesdays is my kind of my daughter's in a program up here a little bike school she's only three and a half but she's having a super super good time doing it super fun and uh so you know we do that on take her drop her off on that on mondays and wednesdays and so spending time up here and then i can get all my emails done and like focus on you know, running this business and, um, you know, a lot of meetings, obviously, with every business. And then uh, the rest of the week is kind of um, free reign for me to kind of like get into my creative space and and design product and, and work on that. So, uh, you know, it doesn't always work out that way. It's hard to, you know, as you have a small companies, you know, uh, everyone's got many, many hats. So you're, uh, you're always trying to, you know, triage between things, but we've got you know, a pretty amazing small team of uh, passionate riders and people who are really into, uh, you know, bikes and apparel. And, uh, you know, Vancouver and the general, you know, southwestern BC area is such a, it's such a global hub for apparel. Honestly, it's got like some of the, some of the, you know, biggest companies around uh, doing apparel work. And um, it's pretty amazing, actually. Uh, So, you know, you've got Arcteryx, you've got uh, Herschel uh, Supply Company, you've got Lululemon, um, you've got a ton of sort of big, big companies. And then as you sort of go down the coast, you know, into the US, you end up with a lot of different companies, you know, think about Portland, uh, you know, with Nike being there, Mm -hmm. Adidas having a main center there, uh, things like that. So you end up having this sort of like, amazing apparel talent, you know, and there's, there's probably, I want to say, I don't know. I don't know exact numbers, but maybe you know hundreds of small little manufacturing uh, facilities in Vancouver. You know, building clothing and jeans and apparel, and um, I don't know if you know wings and horns and uh, you know brands like that uh, are all all making their stuff and uh, and designing it in Vancouver, which is pretty pretty amazing, actually. Yeah, that's super great. So yeah, it's been a it's been a cool uh, a cool uh, cool journey for sure to live in this part of the world. Yeah. Well, uh, talking about this part of the world, so you mentioned actually Whistler, you mentioned Squamish, 
man, you live in the mountain bike heaven, don't you? For sure, yeah. It's funny. Um, I, I lived in Squamish for almost 20 years, and um, uh, it's you know, it wasn't, it was like, you know, you know, 20 years ago was, there was like one mountain bike race. There was a bunch of trails that were fantastic, but it really wasn't this Mecca or wasn't internationally known as a Mecca. And, you know, at the time we were like, geez, the trails are great and everyone loved them, but you never really thought about it in that context. But now that it's, I guess, more focused on the international stage, uh, that's been really interesting. Uh, you know, it's changed sort of how people think about Squamish. Squamish is a destination. Uh, and that wasn't the case even five or seven years ago like that that almost wasn't the case you know at all so we lived here because originally we all moved here because of the rock climbing actually oh. uh and so we were all commuting here on you know tj my co-founder and callum and i uh there are three co-founders of the business uh you know we basically you know lived up here because we were climbing a lot and you know we were also mountain biking but that wasn't actually our main focus at the time uh and there's you know squamish is like one of the best places in Canada for established rock climbing. So we were, we were super into that. I was designing climbing harnesses and backpacks and we were kind of focused on that kind of stuff. And then, um, yeah. And then just riding became more and more of a focus. And, you know, we all got in, we got busy doing that and, um, we got busy with families and, you know, uh, rock climbing is one of those things that unless you're, you know, obsessing and doing it, you know, 24 seven, you, you know, it's, it's super painful because mm -hmm. you just, you, you uh, regress so fast. So, um, you know, we all, uh, we all kind of like full-time switch to riding and, you know, we're, we've always been, you know, all of us have always been like riding road bikes, riding mountain bikes, riding cross bikes, wherever we could, and, you know, now, you know, before gravel biking was a thing, of course. we went through this, we went through this phase for years where we're like, what do we call that? It's like adventure riding and uh, you know, I'm riding on my cross bike on like these dirt roads. Cause it's way more fun than my mountain bike, you know? And, uh, I would say our area where we live is, is not, uh, it's not very great for road biking. There's, you know, a couple of great roads, but usually they're busy with traffic and there there's just, it's really not a destination. Um, you know, but there's amazing, uh, gravel roads, you know, forestry roads that go up into the, you know, up into the Alpine and things like that. And so, you know, gravel bikes have been a great way to kind of, uh, you know, access places that you wouldn't access otherwise. Um, you know, and you, you go down to the States there and to, you know, we've done a couple of trips down to Idaho and things like that. And you, you know, you end up seeing all these gravel roads leading off into the distance, you know, meandering all over the place. And it's so different than BC, BC they're there. You'd probably be better off on a mountain bike because they're pretty rugged roads okay. uh, for the most part. So, uh, yeah, it's been pretty fun to, to watch this um, uh, hodgepodge of, you know, the industry trying to figure out what these bikes are and put them, put a name on them, put a brand on it. I love, you know, mountain bikers have never had a, what we call a uniform. Roadies have had this classic uniform. It's, you know, it's, it's progressed, but it's been pretty classic for, you know, 80 to 100 years. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, mountain bikers have never had that there's no there's no set uniform it's gone through phases it goes through little fashion trends and seeing mountain bikers get into gravel riding seeing roadies getting into gravel riding no one's no one knows what to wear and i just love it it's so fantastic you know i went for this um pr junket down in sun valley a, a few years ago now and uh you know it was where you know we did a couple of mountain bike rides did a couple of road rides did this uh gravel ride and we, everyone shows up for the gravel ride and you got like 
the roadies wearing full spandies lycra you know and you've got the mountain bikers wearing like baggy shirt baggy shorts and a t-shirt and then you got like everyone in between but what was really definingly clear is no one knows what to wear and that i just love that from our point of view because we've always had this sort of motto at seven mesh that's like any two wheels you know we we've defined we defined actually we don't define things by it's actually only the last two years that we've put categories on our website before that we put it kind of we organized it by fit so you know like the same you know it was always um we kind of established the brand and came up with this theory of the seven hour seven day concept of like you know and we started kind of hard with jackets because that's our background and we're and we're good at it and you know we kind of said well seven hour is like I know exactly what it's for. It's done in a day. It's kind of like your light and fast alpine approach. You know, if you're thinking about it from a climbing point of view or from a high mountain point of view. Uh, and so you, you, you have less features, you have a tighter fit for, for riding. Uh, it doesn't flop around in the wind, uh, less versatility, lighter weight. And then you think about, okay, what's our other fit or other fit is seven day. So seven day is like, it's got versatility built in. It's maybe got more venting, more pockets, more, compactability you know ways to put it on your bike things like that and so those break it into two categories but what's amazing is that people have been coming to us and they're like oh i love this seven hour piece which we kind of would think about as a road piece in our heads and they'd be like it's my favorite mountain bike jacket i wear you know use a cross-country mountain biking all the time and you're like that's pretty cool and if we had pegged it as a road jacket you probably wouldn't have bought it and that's the thing about cycling like you can't have a piece of apparel for every bike. That's ridiculous. And so versatility is, so fit has become our, our versatility is, is breaking things into these two categories of, well, how are you going to use it? What are you going to use it for? And do you, are you worried about it being more aero? Are you, are you not worried about that? Are you worried about packability? Are you, are, do you want a hood? Do you not want a hood? You know, like, so those things kind of break into these two buckets and that's, I, it's not true for every product because you get into like bottoms and that you can't really break it into that, but it kind of breaks into that anyway. And so we kind of, we had a hard time for the longest time because we'd write down like, okay, which are the, what items would I wear on my mountain bike? And you write them down. And you, what items would I wear on my road bike? And you compare that with 20 different people and there's such crossover in how people think about how they ride. And that's also true for different demographics around the world. Like if you go to Europe, it's going to be really different. You know, you go to Southern Italy, it's going to be completely different than it's going to be in like, you know, Northern BC, for example. And, you know, those things are going to, um, if you start pegging products to like the, you know, it's great to have intended use to guide consumers, but ultimately people have it in their head, what they want to wear for their activity because they're doing the activity. And so we're just trying to give people, really versatile choices uh and great products that work well on a bike essentially yeah you know, like, yeah yeah no yeah. that's great so actually you would say that uh, don't shout at me if it's uh let's say not so professional as a question but would you say that actually your apparel say your item items are only for cycling or you can also use them you were talking about versatility you can also use them for hiking for example or for sure so we you know we have some items that are obviously you know, more fit for on the bike. Yeah. So, and then we have other items that are more catered. They're still catered for on the bike primarily, but because of the relaxed fit, say of a mountain biking piece, they work really well for hiking and versatility off the bike. So I really dislike this whole, like I can wear it for a ride and then I can wear it to the coffee shop. Like I just like that whole, like trying to market that just drives me crazy. Like just wear what you want when you want, man. Like, you know, like, 
it's a piece of clothing. Like just, just do it. Like, you don't, I don't have to tell you that's okay. Like, it's okay. Like, you know, just do it, just do it. Like, you know, whatever you want to do. And so I think, you know, we have, that's just a, you know, this interesting hodgepodge of, you know, how people think about things. And, you know, some people want to be, they want to see pictures of people wearing things in certain settings so they can kind of like envision what that's going to be and envision how they're going to look wearing it and things like that. And, you know, there's always elements of fashion when we talk about clothing built into it. Um, what color are you wearing and all these different things. But at the same time, you know, wear what you want to wear, wear what works for you and just, you know, have fun on the bike. You know, certain people always think about cycling as like, you know, glory through suffering or whatever you want to say, you know, as certain slogans, I think that's the worst thing ever. I'm like, yeah, there's going to be suffering in cycling, but I don't, I'm not here to remember the suffering. I'm here to remember the smile on my face of doing it, you know, and going through that, you know, and, and enjoying the experience. And so, you know, at seven mesh, it's always been, we've talked about that a lot. And we always think that if we can make someone's experience on the bike better through their apparel to make that weather feel a little less harsh or to make, you know, a rider who's, you know, going for a faster time on something a little bit faster because they're more comfortable, man, that's what we're, that's what we're after. You know, um, I'm not after making people suffer. I'm after making people's experience more comfortable and more and better. And it it makes them want to get on the bike more. And that's awesome. You know, and I, I love that. So I think that's, that's really what we're after in an essence, uh, is trying to make that possible. And so, you know, if I was to summarize what we're, what we do as a, as a brand, as a group of people and how we think about it is we're, we're product driven company and you hear that a lot, but like, we just like solving problems. Like we just, we love it. Like it's, it's what we do best. Um, you know, our process is pretty, pretty wild as far as like, you know, it starts with a fabric usually. And, you know, we have sort of this like list in the back of our brains of like problems we're trying to solve, whether it's moisture management, whether it's uh, keeping you dry, whether it's having more breathability built into these garments, um, creating microclimates, moving moisture, you know, all those things are kind of inter- intertwined. Uh, having a longer um, uh, temperature range within a garment so that you can wear it in broader conditions. You know, those are all, those are all the holy grails that you're trying to solve. And, um, you know, I have a good friend of mine who I, I work with on product and he's been there almost from the beginning, a guy, Conroy Noctegal. And, uh, we work just so well together. We have this kind of like, um, beautiful design process where when we're working on a project, we can kind of like late, you know, I'll be working on patterns or I'll be working on a, a sample. And, you know, I'm, I'm an early morning person. He's a late night person. And you can literally, you know, our first few years of seven mesh were like, uh, he'd finish late at night and leave it on the table and go, go back to his house. And I'd wake up early morning, like basically just like seamlessly just continue where he left off working on it. And, you know, uh, some projects we work on in uh, silos and some projects we work on together. And it's this amazing collaboration where, uh, you're able to, um, just make things happen, you know, and problem solve. And we'll go, we'll go through a stack of like fabric headers. Like, you know, when vendors give you, uh, you know, a hundred headers to look through and pick a fabric you like, and we'll go through and you might pick like three or four out of the hundred that you're like, these are, these are kind of narrowed down. Like, can you send us these headers? And we might get sample yardage, you know, Connor and I might, if we picked four each, we might have three that overlap, you know, totally independent of each other. So, you know, it's really, it's really cool to have that like 
that laser focus of like, you know, what we're kind of like thinking, how we're thinking about things and sort of how, how aligned we are, you know, and, and I would say that that's true for, you know, Tyler, TJ, who's our president and, you know, um, co-founder as well. And Callum Davidson as well, who does all, all of our operations and you know, Callum does all the thankless tasks that, uh, we try to thank him for as much as possible because uh, he's <laughs> okay. keep, keeping things running, you know, production and all that stuff. So, you know, those guys are, are um, everyone's really aligned in, in kind of like what we're trying to do as a group and how we're, how we're trying to, um, you know, focus our collection. And so, you know, we have kind of this internal model of like, you know, we're trying to, I remember sitting at, uh, cause you know, we all came from Arcteryx originally, you know, TJ was there for, almost 20 years and Callum was there for in total, probably like 15 years or something. I was there for about uh, 12 years uh, and all worked in different disciplines, obviously. But, um, you know, I remember sitting in my last sales meeting there before I kind of, you know, flipped mm. my desk over my corporate desk and started my rogue. We started our rogue business, but um, uh, I remember sitting there and listening to a presentation and they're like, Oh, this is a, you know, oh, we've got the Alpha LT and the Alpha SL and the Alpha AR and the Alpha QW, whatever, you know? And and I'm like, looking at them all, I'm like, geez, they're all pretty much the same jacket, man. Like, you know, like, there's like such slight differences. Like, man, if you guys just made one jacket, it, life would be so much better for everyone instead of like five here. Like, you know, and so I remember having that sort of like sitting there, just, you know, me and my disgruntled state and, uh, and the next day I quit my job. And then uh, we kind of had this really loose plan that we'd like to do something in cycling. And TJ had left the business about a year prior. And uh, that was it. We formed 7Mesh pretty quickly after that. Callum kind of got his uh, ducks together as far as, you know, everyone's got to like figure out, will the bank refinance my house? And will that happen? Uh, it's better to do that when you have a job. And then uh, we started, um, we started seven mesh, uh, you know, uh, about two months later or something. Wow. And that was kind of, yeah, we've been talking about cycling stuff for a long time and kind of, you know, our strong belief coming from a technical apparel background of it's amazing, like cycling apparel, you know, and this is, we started in 2013, so seven years ago, and it's changed a lot in seven years, actually, surprisingly. Um, and we always talked about like, what's, uh, you know, why is the cycling industry still, you know, making garments out of nylon and elastane, you know what I mean? And that are supposed to be technical. Like if I went out into the, you know, a real world setting where I needed my garments to work in a harsh environment and typical cycling probably just die, mm -hmm. you know, like in nylon and elastane are like, the, they're almost worse than cotton for soaking up water and just having it sit there. So, you know, like no one really was doing anything technical in, in, uh, in cycling, you know, at that time. So we were just like, we've been looking at it for years going, wow, that's a great opportunity to do something really cool there. We obviously all were super into riding uh, and we all were carpooling back and forth to the city from Squamish every day. So yeah, I guess uh, 7Mesh was kind of born in the carpool, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Not really, but sort of. Yeah. yeah. And so I think, uh, you know, we've always been just like, we want to make great things we want to solve good problems and we want to work with great people that's a that's a really important thing for us to like work with rad people and talk to them and hear their stories and do great things hopefully and, and you know one of our unspoken rules is always uh we want to have more fun than anyone along the way and you know obviously with small business and you know trying to finance it and all that stuff is stressful 
And so I feel like we're, we're just now coming out of the super stressful phase and getting into the, like, you know, getting into the, Hey, this is getting really fun right now. And, uh, we're having a lot of fun with it. So, you know, we've had a lot of fun thus far, but I'm super excited about the next few years. Cause we've got some just like blockbuster things that I've been kind of tinkering on for a while that I haven't had time to like, you know, or time or resources really to launch new things in, in these new kind of, you know, harebrained crazy ideas that I've got. So the next few years are going to be a series of those. And I'm, I'm super excited. I think we're all excited, but I'm, I'm super excited because I feel like I finally have a, a team working with me that are just of amazing people. And, uh, we can kind of like, we're all, we're all excited about it. So, uh, hopefully the momentum keeps building. <laughs> That's super great. Actually. Yes. Yeah. Um, I really love to listen to your voice and actually letting you talk about this thing because yeah there is a lot of enthusiasm there and that's the way having fun while doing things and that's why everybody of us should start a new adventure a new project or his own business like you did so that's super awesome man yeah it's been fun it's been really fun um i remember calling tj up after i sort of like impromptu quit my job and just feeling like, so we should do this business thing we keep talking about. He's like, oh yeah, why is that? I'm like, well, I quit my job today. And he's like, you did what? <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> and I remember, I remember his voice. He's like, you did what? He's like, I'm like, yeah, so we better do it. And he's just like, okay, then we're doing it, I guess. You know, or conversation went something like that. And then uh, I remember talking to Callum and he was of course on board and uh, off we go. So uh, it's been a pretty interesting ride <laughs> along the way. Yeah. Yeah. No, but yeah, it's great. And actually also it seems like your idea was straight from the beginning pretty clear. Create something for cyclists, so apparels for apparel for cyclists, something that was super technical and something that solved problems. So yeah. Totally. Yeah. Totally. Yeah, yeah. We're we're uh we really really do enjoy it. So it's it's been fun. Yes, perfect. Um talking about products, actually you gave us a bit of an idea, but um Something like you said, okay, we, we are creating stuff that will help to have the best experience of people on the bike, be there, have fun, be protected by the weather, or still be comfortable on the bike, whatever it is. And you said as well that you want to solve problems. But how actually the concept, uh, the concept itself of something new or of the products that you are building up, how is the process kind of in terms yeah, of design, yeah. so, of everything? Yeah, Yeah. so let's, I mean, it might be good to give some context, you know, uh, to to your listeners on um sort of how most of the most and i say most is that quite a few people out there still doing it what i would consider the best way um it, it, but there's a lot of people that have you know uh development centers globally right have um gotten better right so factories are really good at building things uh they have amazing resources with really really talented people regardless of where they are in the world um you know building apparel and they're really good at building patterns. They're really good at, um, you know, suggesting ways to construct garments and articulation, things like that. So what's happened over the past, I want to say 40 years, probably, of, mm. of, you know, it's probably a slow, slow burn for about 40 years of factories getting better at building things and people kind of, you know, generally speaking, companies getting worse at building things. So uh, what's happened is that the knowledge has shifted to being uh, at the factories of like, how do we build stuff? And so uh, generally most companies out there literally will like pick fabrics, you'll pick fabrics, some will pick fabrics, some will let the factory pick them or give them a selection. Uh, they'll draw a picture of what they want the garment to look like. 
uh, they'll do a spec pack of like, I want the seams to be like this and I want the hem to be like that. And I want the cuffs to be like this. And they just envision, you know, but if you're drawing it, you can't really, you can't really invent anything without like conceptualizing something new and to conceptualize something do new, I feel like you need to be working with those materials. And so, and I think that's a really important thing. So, you know, what happens is they do these pictures, these tech packs, which are amazing. Like they're almost like engineering specs uh, and they send them off to whatever their, fa- wherever their factory is in the world. And it could be literally anywhere because there's apparel factories everywhere in the world. Um, and they produce a garment and that garment comes back and then they make revisions to it and they draw lines on it and they do some fittings and things like that. And then they send it back and then that gets produced. Usually there's like two samples. That's, that's the deal. Like that's how the process works. And so it's never been, it's never been easier to get garments, good garments built in the world. Like it's like the process is seamless. You can you can literally draw a picture on a napkin and send it off, and they'll come back with something that's like really nice for the okay. most part. Yeah. So our process is completely different. We don't. Perfect. I don't even draw pictures. So like I, I'm I'm a horrible. Well, I wouldn't say I'm horrible. I just don't put any time into drawing. And usually the usually the factory's on like proto three or four, and they're just like you know in our final process, and they're like, "Can you just send us a drawing? We need a drawing to put on the spec so that the factory can follow it." And they're usually begging for that. So you know, our process is very much. We usually start with a fabric. We narrow in on a fabric that's going to do something, and then we start creating like a pattern block, and that's just done by hand. We we still work on paper for the most part. I just hired a. Uh, digital pattern person to help me out because I'm drowning in paper patterns right now. Okay. But it's literally you're starting from scratch and I will create a three-dimensional pattern on a two-dimensional plane that will make the garment. And it's always like, what arm articulation are we looking for? Like if I was going to make a jacket for say ice climbing, it would have to have articulation so that it's, you know, the body fabric could only pull in so much to give me the reach to go up so my hem didn't rise up and pull out of my harness for example right mm-hmm. and that's that's a an, an intentional thing on a bike that garment's got to come forward right into yeah. a riding position but i can't feel too tight when i put it on in the change room or in the store because mm-hmm. then you're going to feel oh it doesn't fit so all of our you know even our garments the more tight fitting ones you try them on you'd be like oh it fits a little tight in the chest but as soon as you put it you know go down into a riding position with your arms forward it's like, oh, now it fits perfect. And so there, there's a fine line you're walking there between people thinking when they try the garment on, it doesn't fit to it, you know, fitting, fitting good, standing up, and then they go into the riding position and it's too baggy. So there's this real fine line we, we try to walk there with how these garments fit. And so to do that, you have to know your materials. You have to know intimately how they work and how they you're able to manipulate them. Um and then you need to know how to pattern things in different ways. So, you know, changing your grain lines on wovens to manipulate the stretch, um, modifying those patterns so that there's longer stretch, less seams. You know, for us, it's always about less is more. So you want to you wanna add until there's nothing left to add and don't add any more, you know? And, and, you know, and people always say, I take away things until there's nothing left or whatever. But I actually think it's the other way around. I think you're actually adding until you don't need to add any more. Uh, and you're because you are building this garment. So we'll go through this process of building these patterns. I'll do, I mean, if I'm starting from scratch, it could be five, six, seven, just mock-ups in 
whatever fabric I have, you know, fabrics that we're keeping for, to use scraps of um, with similar characteristics. And then I might make a full garment um, myself. Then I might get one of the people in the office to help me make a second one or a third one, uh, depending on what it is. Like in our first season, like TJ always laughs. He kept this pile of um, hoods. I had like 14 hoods I built to try to get our hood the way I wanted it to be. And so I just kept keeping them and I punch a hole in them and then just put them on the pattern hook. And so I have this pile of like this big, like bouquet of hoods. And he's just like, he keeps it all the time. Cause he's like, that's a good reminder of how much work it is to build simple things. Yeah. And so, uh, and he's right. And so I think that, you know, going through that process, it's not, everyone's like, well, why wouldn't you just like, design it and then hand it off to someone and they could sew it for you. Doesn't it take a long time to like, you know, it takes, it doesn't need 40 hours to sew a Gore-Tex jacket in with all its details. Easy, you know, cutting all the pieces out and doing it. And, you know, but going through the process and I don't have to go through the whole process all the time. It's part of the journey. And it's actually really, it's actually really important to have that. You know, I don't, I don't believe the human brain can, encompass enough information that you can envision and then detail it in paper what you want someone else to take your vision and create i just don't think you can do it whereas i think when you're going through the process of building it i'm always like oh geez this is hard to sew i could make that i could change this pattern and combine those two pattern pieces i could make that easier to sew and ultimately you know like i want I want the factory operator to like sew the first one and have a smile on their face, you know, cause they're like, this is sweet. Like there's no stop and starts. There's no awkward seam junctions. If I drew a picture, you don't know that yeah. it's really hard to envision how that garment's actually going to go together. And so, you know, I was fortunate enough to have a lot of manufacturing factory experiences in my sort of um, experience at Arcteryx. And we were lucky enough to own our own factory there uh, and that, which we ran in Canada. And, uh, I was able to work on some projects that were being, you know, industrialized in that factory. So, you know, I always said to people on my team as a, you know, as I got more senior there, you know, I need, I need you as a designer to be able to sew this garment, you know, better than the first hundred that come off the factory floor. Like that's the level of like finesse I'm looking for. Because if you understand it that intimately, you became a master of your mean, like, you know, your medium. So, like if I'm a painter, I need to know how to mix colors of course. to have, you know, them come together to create a different hue or a different tone or a different color, or different shading. And I expect the same out of people who design apparel, but that's not the case in the industry. You know, there's a few people, you know, that are still doing that. And, um, and I think they're doing a really great job of it around the world. You know, I've got like four or five people that I kind of talk with and collaborate with, and they're still kind of like doing that. And there's some design houses of people doing it where they, their process is similar and they're farming that talent out to big companies. But a lot of that's been lost, that, that ability to be able to make things and people, people undervalue it. They think it's, Oh, well that takes too long. And, but ultimately, you know, the more work you put up in up front, you save that time down the road, right? You save that time on your proto process. You get what you want. So, you know, the good thing is when we send something to a factory, I send them a full pattern. I send them a finished garment. We send them a tech pack. You know, we send them all the information that they need. So then when those samples come back, they're almost identical to what we wanted because, you know, that's what we asked for. And we gave them something, we gave them a map to follow. If I'm asking, if I'm just drawing a picture, it's probably not coming back the way you want it to. And are you understanding, you know, if I take a little bit out of here, how am I manipulating that garment? I mean, our patterns tend to be a bit nuts. Um, you know, people look at them, they're like, whoa, what's going on there? 
but ultimately at the end of the day, like, you know, we've got our, our best short that we sell our MK three shorts, um, as far as like a sort of a, um, Lycra tight fitting short, you know, I don't want to use the words road, uh, but, uh, but it is, you know, very road okay. uh, for sure. And so, um, you know, and that, that, that short is like, it's like, if you're into sewing, it's like a dream to sew. It's like you sew one seam and then another one, and then the whole thing comes together in this sort of like seam, you know, not seamless. Cause that's all, that's a joke. I mean, everything has a seam, um, you know, and, and you just sew it together and it comes together in this beautiful process that's easy to sew. And so when you sew it, whenever I, you know, people sew for the first time, I'm like, how was that? And they're like, that was really great. Like, it's like, it puts a smile on your face. Cause it like, it went to weather, it went together like really easily because, you know, you put the energy into making those seams work that way. Not cause you want to make it easier. Like the, some things can be hard to put together and still worth it. But if it, I generally think if you're trying to minimize seams, you're trying to minimize bulk, you're trying to maximize stretch and comfort, you know, if you're trying to, you know, tackle all those sort of like problems, these, uh, if the garment goes together seamlessly and you're doing that, man, you've like, you've nailed it. Like you're winning for sure. Yeah. 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 So basically that's, that's, we love doing that stuff. That's like, that's like right you know, we, that's like, everyone's happy when that's happening for sure. Yeah. No, it's super cool actually, because I was a bit, let's say, uh, I had to put a bit of thoughts. I was a bit conscious when I was suddenly asking you this question because I wanted to use the word design, but basically you not only design, you actually, you are really for using this perfect way. You are prototyping, uh, your, yeah, your models. Totally. Right? Like I, I would say that, you know, the closest thing, and I've tried to put words to like the process, you know, when I started in this industry, I actually didn't know what an industrial designer was. And I think that's actually really true for a lot of people who start, you know, I, I'm not, I'm not classically trained in this industry by any means. Um, you know, I've been sewing stuff since I was a kid, um, and kind of, you know, self-taught for the most part, obviously I had a lot of great mentors and people along the way of, who have, uh, taught, I've learned a lot from, but, you know, I would say our process is closer to an industrial design type approach than anything else. And, uh, you know, a bit of engineering in there, a bit of textile science for sure. But I would say that um, it's closer to that sort of industrial design process, but then applying it to apparel. Whereas, you know, um, the fashion industry, you know, the traditional fashion industry where people are draping garments on mannequins and doing it really, you know, really... Um, uh, hands-on that's really actually still very unique and, and done in a lot of industries uh, and then there's lots of people that draw pictures and get good results too so you know it depends on depends on what you're looking for but for us you know I don't want to I don't want to be negative to anyone's process here because there's so many great ones and everyone's going to do what works for them um, it's been just critical uh, you know the process to get there is you know to, for us that indicates the outcome Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think we could get the same outcome without, without this process that we've refined over the last 20 years. So, um, that, that for us is really important and, you know, change is incremental for the most part. People always think there's like, oh, they launched this new technology, shabam, and it's this new thing on the market, you know? And, uh, the way I look at it is that change is a series of incremental steps that you're just tackling. You know, if you look at that end goal, in its entirety, it's, it's too daunting. You know, I, I like to think about it as, you know, maybe it's a stage race in, in, uh, in cycling, or maybe it's a, um, uh, maybe it's, you know, climbing Yosemite, climbing El Cap, you know, and you look at it and the whole thing is completely overwhelming and mm. daunting. But if you break it down into every pitch, 
you know, or every stage, um, it's, it's possible to do that and make great change and do different things. And that's, that's ultimately, you know, what we try to do with the apparel is, is, um, is break everything down into incremental stages, keep improving on that, keep having those same goals season after season, not have these seasonal collections that someone in marketing decided that they needed to have. And they're pushing it back on the design team and saying, we need one that does this and one that does that. You know, we don't, we don't do that. We have a process where we go, these are the problems we can solve and how do we apply that to the market? And some problems are not ready for the market in certain phases. So we kind of just sit on those and wait and go, we're going to keep working on that one. And in, in a season or two, the market will be ready for that and then we'll launch it. And so that's been super fun, you know, to have that uh, luxury and also, you know, be, be a small company and be nimble and be able to do what, do what we want to do. Like some days I, I come in and I just like say, I'm not going to any meetings today. I'm, I'm just going to like make something that I need to make and see where that goes. And that's okay. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> it's, great. it's important. Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So actually we're actually, starting with a conversation that I would love to tackle with you, uh, that yeah. we're talking about marketing applied to product versus product applied to marketing. So this is the main part yeah. that I want to start with. To start with this conversation that is, are going to lead us to one of my favorite topics, that is sustainability, I want to ask you two sharp questions. Where do you produce your garments and where do you source your materials? Yeah, um, we are producing all of our garments right now in three different factories in china mm-hmm. um so you know as a small brand it's it's actually really hard to find good factories it's actually really hard to find good factories a- anyway um and so we're working with uh two partners that we've been working with since almost day one um and one is owned by a really great family that we've known for about 20 years uh it's a, it's a second generation um facility owned by this great family um originally from hong kong and uh they're fantastic we've known them for a really long time so we get along really well with them and then the other one is actually owned by um uh an austrian family and uh, they have a factory in china and they've been running it for geez i want to say oh i'm maybe over 50 years 60 years Mm -hmm. so it's been been there a long time you know like when they started it there was no one producing garments in this whole area now it's like you know obviously everything's grown so much in china it's a big uh, big giant metropolitan city and then our third factory is actually um uh actually owned by a swiss guy uh and uh but they're running you know we found them through a fabric vendor and we're like hey we're looking for someone who can do really really wonderful printing and things like that uh you know for sublimation printing digital printing and, and that kind of thing because we're we don't that's not our expertise at all and so um he recommended this factory and literally they were about a 45 minute drive from our other factory. We were like, what? This is crazy. And he was a friend who's making these beautiful textiles in another family run business in Taiwan where, you know, his, his father started this dye house in Taiwan, you know, uh, back in the fifties and forties. And, uh, and, uh, he's taken it over since then and runs it. And so he gave us this recommendation and we were like, started working with these guys and they're just amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, the guys are these, this uh, one guy's German, one guy's Swiss, and they're living in um, living in China and and uh, kind of telecommuting back and forth with their families. And they're really an interesting group of people and have done fantastic work as well. Uh, and you're working with a bunch of really uh, reputable brands as well Okay, uh, that are out there. Yeah. Yeah. So it's been really cool. And so, um, you know, lots happening in, in China in the last seven years and lots happening right now with the world in China and, and, uh, 
yeah, I'm, uh, you know, hope, I'm very hopeful that things improve uh, there and uh, and we see things level out because there's definitely some um, turmoil and uh, in certain provinces, uh, definitely people uh, people hurting out there for sure. Okay. So uh, got a lot of sympathy for for what's happening there and and trying to figure out uh, what the route forward is. But yeah, China's been a um, fantastic place. It's really hard, you know, because we were working with Gore from the get go and Gore Tex. Um, we had very limited choices in which factories we could use. There's very few that have uh, Gore Tex licenses, and there's also very few that are interested in doing customers that have small volume. Uh, you know, because we're a startup brand, you know, at the beginning. Now our volume's gotten a little bit better, but um, you know, we still struggle with that as a small brand, people trying to get into the industry um, mm-hmm. of how, how you produce these really technical garments with small volume. It's, uh, you're not sure if the, you know, you're not sure if the factory is doing you a favor or they're, or they're even making money on it for that matter. Cause you know, factory margins are, you know, they're hard, you know, you know, in textile vendor margins are even lower. So, you know, a lot of people right now are, you know, COVID, you know, everyone back in COVID times, you know, the industry across the board, everyone canceled all their fabric orders, canceled all their production POs because they didn't know what was going to happen. We were super fortunate. Um, we had all of our stuff already built. So we didn't have the choice. Otherwise, we probably would have too because we were freaking out. Um, but then, you know, cycling started to pick up and orders started to pick up. But a lot of those fabric vendors, you know, they have multi-million dollar machines they're sitting on, you know, and um, economically, they're they're really they're really struggling with that. So, you know, we try to work with people we know really well and people we people we really like. Um, yeah, and uh, like we said, you know, have have fun along the way and uh, and 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 uh, you know work with these great people. Yeah. So one of the vendors we work with, uh, the guys who do all the printing, uh, you know, the you know the chi- China is not obviously the cleanest air in the world. Um, it's gotten a lot better, geez, in the last five years. I have to say, I feel like. Um, you know, in some ways, their ability to control all those things at a government level, as much as I'm, you know, not into the way they're controlling certain things, uh, it's could have a quite a positive impact on the environment. Um, where, you know, someday I think they're just going to basically turn off those cold-fired power plants, and they're just going to be all, all sustainable energy. You know, and and that's going to happen. Like here, you know, in North America, for example, or the you know the Western world, the developed world, I think that's going to take a long time for people to like get on board with that. You know, everyone has free will to make their own decisions. And in China, you know, as much as that has a negative impact on that front, I feel like it's just one day that that's just going to be turned off. Like they're just going to turn it off, and the air is going to be clean, and that's going to be an amazing time. I'm really looking forward to that time. But anyway, our guys over there, they ride bikes quite a bit. Uh, and they're quite active uh, road road cyclists, and so we love going over there. And uh, I'm always like, "How do you do it with the air quality? Like, how do you like how do you manage it?" And they're like, "Yeah, they're like, we just feel like we're doing a service for the environment, and every breath we're filtering the air." I'm like, "That's disgusting. That is the grossest thing I've ever heard." And, you know, you're over there for a week and you're dying. You know, and uh, these guys are actually riding their bikes and quite competitively. Uh, so I don't know how they're doing it, but they're they're pretty committed to the sport. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, yeah. It's so, perfect. and yeah, you're, you, so that, that answers your first question. And then materials wise, um, we have materials coming from all over the world. Okay. Um, yeah. And so I wouldn't, there's no one source where we have materials. Um, we have a few textiles coming from China. We've got a few from Japan. We've got some in Taiwan. We've got some in Italy. Uh, we, I feel like we had one or two in, Turkey, 
Um, yeah, so like all over all over the world, we have a couple from North America, from uh, Massachusetts, uh, I guess North Carolina now. Um, so yeah, there's there's fabrics we have kind of coming from all over. Like you know, people who aren't familiar with the apparel industry, you know, like I, there's so many moving parts. It's wild. Like not to um, you know downplay bikes, but you know if I'm building a a bike frame, you know, there's there's very few materials in that thing. You know what I mean? Like carbon, it, aluminium, titanium, steel, bamboo. Totally, and and very and very uh, not very often they're the same materials in the same bike. You know what I mean? So it's like, and then components. Obviously, there's more uh, materials, but you know, a one piece of apparel. You know, our bill of materials or how many materials we're using is probably, you know, between twenty and fifty. So, you know, every single piece of thread, every single um, elastic hem piece, every single, uh, you know, heat transfer label, everything has to be on that spec. So it's, and, you know, then they're cut, they're all brought to one location, they're cut, they're sewn, they're laminated, they're glued, they go through this intent, very human intensive process where people are, you know, people are building these garments. Like, we used to bring people through the Arcteryx factory and you do this wonderful tour and they'd be like, where are the machines that make the garments? And you'd be like, dude, people make garments, not machines. Yeah. Like, I think people are detached from manufacturing. They don't understand that, like, even, you know, carbon frames, man, there's so much labor that goes into those. There's so much labor that goes into any frame, you know, with the welding and the preparing of the materials and the cutting. I mean, hands touch everything at every stage, and people don't get that. Um, and that's a really interesting thing to watch people's eyes open up and go, whoa. Oh, people make this. That's so cool, you know. And I think all of us have found found that really interesting, you know, over the years, seeing people's reactions for how things actually get built. And so, you know, when they come into our office, they're like, "You can build every garment that you guys produce here in this office." And I'm like, "If you had to, I'm like, yeah, yeah, we can. Like, there's like one machine I don't have because I, you know, I use it in one application that I can't, but I've got another way to put it together. But yeah, we can build everything here." And they're just like. Well, it's not very fancy, and you're like, yeah, but simple tools, simple things. Like you can you can do anything if you have the knowledge. And so I think that's really what it comes down to is is knowledge across the board. Yeah, perfect. Uh, to continue on this conversation, why I asked you about materials for two di two different reasons. Uh, still mentioning Andrea again. Again, he was actually telling me that probably the items that you are making with Gore-Tex. They are just awesome. They are just amazing, and that's great to know. And also because on the other side now back to the marketing to product instead of product to marketing uh, seems like now actually there is this rush uh, that is talking about recycling materials everybody's claiming with this huge keyword that is sustainability material on sustainability and uh, recycle material and sustainability recyclable materials and sustainability what's your take on that what's your belief on that yeah. It, for your point of view and also for some of mesh point of view actually you're the product person so yeah no it's a great question i think you know there's um gosh it's like as a consumer it's hard to know where to turn honestly like it's there's so much out there and there's there's such an it's such an interesting hodgepodge of things all coming together and you know some things are you know i hate to use the word greenwash but some people things are greenwashed and some people things are actual um like all items that we produce in the world you know, producing items and buying new items is bad for the environment. Like plain and simple as a, as a statement, you know, that's, it's just like, it's just not good for the environment. So if you can keep things and not buy new things, 
that's going to have a more, more of an impact, you know, um, on, on that. So I think what's really interesting is, you know, I don't know if people are aware, like garments are not recyclable period, you know, and we, we talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but like, Mm -hmm. they're, they're really not recyclable in, in any way, you know, um, they come in all different colors. All those trim pieces I was talking about are all different, um, pieces with different contents. You know, you have mixed contents like your cycling Jersey. That's say it's polyester cause you're printing on it or it's nylon, your digital printing, but it has elastane in it, which is polyurethane. You know, now it's got those two materials blended together. You can't recycle that. So, you know, hundred percent polyester in theory you could recycle, but then how do you take the color out? You know, it's the same for all these pop bottles that were making polyester garments, you know, PE bottles become, or PET bottles become polyester when they're converted, you know, and, and but process to convert them is is so you know energy sucking it's uh you know the chemicals that are used to take the color out is unbelievably bad for the environment and so there's getting better processes in place for recycling those materials better processes for water filtration uh, and that's having a huge impact and some of the mills we work with in taiwan are you know i would say leaders you know they're they're leaders in that field um and they're doing just an amazing you know job of uh of of doing that uh, but at a certain point, you know, when you get above a certain percentage of content of recycled materials, you, you're, it's a diminishing return. You're not maybe doing more for the environment by having hundred percent recycled versus 50% recycled. At some point that's, uh, using so much energy to do also, where are you getting the recycled materials from? You know, like, where are they coming from? Like, uh, I said this earlier, but I'll say it again, like Adidas, uh, you know, made this claim and I don't know if they're still holding to it, but that they would have uh, 100% recycled polyesters in their collection by 2024. You know, I think I've been following that for a few years now. And I'm like, geez, is there, is there that many, is there that much recycled content of BET to make those polyester fibers in the world? Yeah. Like literally the con- the content, the amount, and we're putting all this, you know, pop bottles, we're using less pop bottles globally, which is fantastic. Those are going into the garments. The garments are not recyclable. Where's the where's the closed loop on that? How are we getting there? And so, you know, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of questions, you know, that are unanswered of where we're going and how we're doing it. And I don't want to I really don't want to sound negative because I think that the efforts people have made and people who are in the forefront of pushing the limits and trying to, you know, influence and make more recycled content that's awesome. And, and we're doing the same thing. You know, we have more and more recycled materials in our collection every season as we deem that they're suitable to last as long as possible in those garments. And that brings me to my other point, which is what we're trying to do is make garments last a really long time. I want all the components to wear evenly on those garments. So, you know, zippers notoriously break down before some of the rest of the garment. Um, I don't want to create a seam construction with some random gluing technique you know that can never be repaired down the road or breaks down you know quicker thread is good like thread's a good thing you know and so knowing how we're going to build things and knowing those construction methodologies intimately helps us make the right decisions to make that garment last longer um if a garment you know if, if all the components you know in the dream scenario wore completely evenly on the garment still something's got to go first so if something wore first like a zipper uh, you know, we're, we're actively working on how do we make zippers easy to replace? You know, how do we keep that garment out there as long as humanly possible? 
and again, use as much recycled content in the garment as we as we can or we see as fit. And you know, we're a small business, so we don't have tons of access to you know custom materials at crazy yardage and things like that. So you know, we don't we don't have the ability for Adidas to be able to have a materials team of three hundred people and be able to do that. Um, but what we do have is the ability to sort of manipulate things at a micro level and make changes really fast. So if we think we can improve a zipper, like I can have that change in our next production run pretty instantly, you know? And so, whereas some of these, you know, large ships are hard to move, you know, uh, other companies don't have that ability. You know, certain companies out there do tacks on the top and bottoms of their zippers and they, they tack those in with bar tacks, um, you know, to replace a zipper in one of those garments would take you, I mean, it might take you an hour to pick those bar tacks, even a, even a skilled operator to remove that zipper without damaging the fabric. So, you know, if you do that kind of thing, how are you going to justify the cost to replace an old garment or to replace a zipper on an old garment? You're just going to go, well, let's buy a new one. Absolutely. And ultimately that's what we want to try to avoid. And so, um, you know, that's the sustainability is tough. You know, you get into waterproof, breathable fabrics, you know, uh, whether it's Gore-Tex or whether it's a million of the other different ones out there, those are three layers of fabric. So you got, you know, face fabric, which can be uh, nylon or polyester. It can be recycled, you know, partially recycled content or 100% recycled content for the face. Then it has a layer of polyurethane in between it that glues it to the membrane. They get the membrane, which is EPTFE, which is actually completely inert in the environment like it doesn't it doesn't have any negative effect in the environment as it breaks down but it lasts a really long time in the environment so that's that's a negative right then you've got polyurethane dots gluing it together again and then you've got a backer fabric which is either which is nylon or polyester recycled or not and so eptfe i don't i don't believe there's a supply chain that can recycle that right now so that's a virgin material polyurethane because you're looking for the adhesives to be um you know really um reliable is probably not it probably doesn't have many um for adhesives at least uh, recyclable uh components around it it will in the future for sure um eptfe will probably long term go away it will probably there's enough pressure from the industry right now even though it has it has very little it's like um it takes a very long time to break down and that's the that's the negative of it uh but it has like a lot of things break down and can cause microplastics and can cause problems in the environment. EPTFE is, you know, it's essentially Teflon. It it does in it in that state that you know that uh, plastic state. It's uh, it basically does nothing. <laughs> it's no negative. <laughs> it, you know, it doesn't leach. It doesn't do anything bad. So that's that's a good thing. But you know, those those have a lot of components. And what I'm getting at is like by those having many many layers within those things. How do you recycle that? Absolutely. You have to break it down to all the components. It's it's impossible. So, you know, a few years ago, I'm using Adidas a lot because they're kind of they're doing some great work there. Um, they developed a shoe that was, you know, and they developed uh it was all polyurethane. So what they did is they created a foam that was polyurethane with the same chemical properties as say the polyurethane thread that had to be in it. And then they created fabrics out of polyurethane, which is really hard to do, like to make nice soft fabrics out of polyurethane. I, I've never actually seen the physical shoes. Um, because they, I think they sold out and they made so few. But again, to do that it has no dye, so it's all white. So you've got a white shoe with all the same materials done in different components. But man, the the exercise to do that is so hard. But how great is it? So now you can take that shoe at the end of its life cycle. I mean, again, you've got to have a process for recycling it, and you've got to maybe mail it back to 
you know, the head office in wherever, you know, in Germany and, and be able to do that. But what a great exercise to go through that you can have this thing that you can then put in the chipper, chips it down to like your base material and washes it and chips it down. Uh, and then you can, in theory, make all those materials again from your one base material. But wow. as far as the apparel industry goes, you know, as far as that being usable across the board, we are so far off um, being able to do that. And so, you know, I think, you know, what can we tackle, you know, today? And so trying to focus on those goals, repairability of items, uh, shipping less things around the world. So having, you know, localized repair centers uh, where we can we can tackle those problems locally so we're not shipping things as far. Um, getting people to repair their own garments. So, you know, we, we've started this program. We have these repair kits we send out to people and we have little videos on how to like repair their garments. If you get a little nick in your elbow or a small one, then we're like, okay, well, we're going to give you instructions. So be careful, but you can repair this with your home iron. We're going to give you the materials to do that and uh, and trying to do that because now all we're doing is we're, you know, shipping these little tiny packages and we've talked about rolling that out to our dealers. So you can go to the dealer and pick up that, you know, that package and be able to repair those garments. Um, we repair, I don't have stats for you, but uh, I mean, I want to say hundreds of garments in our head office there in Squamish uh, every year from crash repairs, things like that. Um, you know, I, you know, I've got someone who does repairs, but I, you know, when they're sick or they're out of the office, I'm doing the repairs, you know, we're a small business and trying to get people, if someone walks in off the street and they're like, Hey, my staff's gone, then I'll put in a new staff for them. You know, we want to, I don't want to have that. You don't want people without their garments. You want to make it, you know, usually when people come to you with a crash repair or something, they're like, but I need my jacket. I don't want to give up my jacket. And so we try to make that happen as quickly as possible. Um, we try to use materials that we know are not going to break down over time. Um, we don't want an, an Achilles heel, you know, um, that, uh, that causes us grief, um, you know, down the road. So, you know, that, that's, I think what we're trying to do with materials and then have them come together. Uh, we've obviously got the repair center that we work with outdoor repair in Zurich, who, uh, ERS does an amazing job there. Uh, and, uh, we work with those guys. We've got another one we just opened, um, in Scotland. Mm -hmm. Um, and because of Brexit, we've had to have, you know, we used to ship them all to Zurich. Um, from Central Europe, but now, and I think we'll probably end up with one in Northern Europe as well, um, you know, uh, in Norway or somewhere like that. Uh, and then we've got one we're just opening up in Washington State, uh, and we might open an additional one in Vancouver, just trying to, uh, you know, deal with the demand. We're such a small team that sometimes we can't keep up with it. Yeah. And so, you know, trying to make sure people, if they crash in a garment, we can repair it. Um, if we're trying to, uh, we want to make sure if there's a warranty issue with the garment, we can try to repair it. Um, and if we can get the garment back, we'll, we'll, what we'll end up doing is we'll sell that garment that someone gives us back. If we, if we have to give them a new jacket, um, we'll end up repairing it and actually selling it. We don't, uh, we don't throw out garments. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we'll have like have a second sale or whatever, and we'll have a rack for warranty repairs. If someone's looking for, you know, something that's a little more worn, then uh, we'll we'll resell those items as well. So waste not. Yeah, I really love actually this approach. So the point is not producing a bunch of new things any year made out of 100% recycled or claimed recyclable items or uh, yeah, fabrics or stuff, but make things that last long right we yeah and obviously we want to have less impact when we're making those items as well so where we can we will use we will use as much recycle as we can but mm. knowing farewell like it's not fair to say 
an item is 100% recycled because there's very few garments out there that are 100% recycled. You know, polyester tech tees probably are. You know, if you made we've made a polyester 100% recycled polyester tech tee, or you know, Polar Tech's been a, a big advocate of using recycled materials for you know for almost 30 years. They've been making you know recycled polyester garments out of uh, you know pop bottles and things like that. Um, but again, it comes down to the garment is still not recyclable. You know, the thread is still not, you know, all the trim bits, they're not the same material. So, um, what are we going to do? So yeah, obviously less impact in how we produce the garments. I think we, right now in our range, uh, we're, I would guess around 20% of our materials are recycled, um, recycled content, wow. uh, something like that. I would say we don't talk about it much. We're actually trying to figure out how to talk about it without, you know, we don't want to greenwash. It's just, it just makes sense at some point for certain things to be recycled and, and certain things to not be recycled. Um, and I would say by as more recycled materials become available, as long as sources don't dry up, because I'm, I, I think that's generally going to be actually really a big problem is there's going to be less recycled materials available. And, mm. you know, you worry that if a fabric vendor is trying to like manage that they might not be able to get their hands on recycled fibers. And if they can't get their hands on recycled fibers, what's happening behind, behind the scenes are people making pop bottles so that they can then recycle them. I mean, we've heard stories of that. I don't know if that's true or not, but uh, yeah, that's the kind of reality you're looking at is as demand increases, where's it all coming from? And so I want to make sure that we're doing this in a, an open and uh, honest way and on a smart way about doing it, the last thing I want to do is um, say it has to be this. And then we end up in a, a problem where people are trying to meet that demand. So uh, I would say by 2023, 2024, we'll probably be at 40% maybe recycled content. You know, it, there's a lot of moving moving pieces there. Um, so it's, it's not fair to set a, a target. And then maybe you know a year after that, we could be up upwards around 60% maybe, you know, as far as, wow. and that's, not all components, it's just more stuff is becoming available um, to us as a small brand. So, you know, if we can have less of a carbon footprint going into those scenarios, uh, you know, trying to use uh, re- recycled and recyclable packaging and things like that, we've been we've been really trying to do that from the get-go, the start of the business. Uh, we chat regularly to um, friends and contacts in the industry to see how everyone else is doing. You know, we've got some good friends down at Patagonia who have been really helpful and, and, you know, going, how do you guys do it? And they're like, Oh, well, here's how we do it. And this is the problems associated with it. And we kind of try to share notes with businesses, you know, that are doing a great job. I mean, that's what we should all be doing as stewards. We're, we're competing in some ways, but at the same time, uh, we all have to work together and, uh, and make sure, make sure that happens, uh, in a, in a smart way. No, that's super awesome. And actually knowing that there is this kind of solidarity, I would say collaboration, even yeah, and there, uh, there has to with be. I mean, everyone's, everyone's working on the same thing, so you might as well share notes. And you know, we have good friends and um, people we work with at Lululemon as well, and they help out. And we have also the same at Arcturx. Um, although we know less and less people there these days, um, we still still know quite a few people there. And you're able to sort of like share ideas and share notes, and um, and you know try to try to figure out you know is there some um, you know golden you know, golden egg that they've got that we don't have. And, and, you know, if it's on a, something that's not going to, you know, hurt their business, then we should all be sharing. And ultimately, you know, all of us figuring out how we're going to do it, um, makes it all stronger, uh, across the board.
and makes the industry more sustainable, which ultimately helps everybody. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just want to uh, ask you also another super sharp question about reparation. So you were actually mentioning factories, repairing centers that you have around the Americas, so something like in the Americas or in Europe or whatever. How does a normal repairing shop or whatever you want to call it a repairing center for you so you told me actually that you know the guys here in zurich since long time so that was one way but now you're looking for something new for example you look for you found something new in scotland you're looking for something new in northern europe how does it work yeah um good question so uh i guess there's just kind of like shops that have popped up over the years of people who are just repairing garments and you know it might have been someone who was really into gear it might have been someone who was a seamstress uh it might have been tailors uh, as originally and then they've gotten more technical so there's you know uh you know Gore-Tex actually has a great uh series of repair centers that are certified Gore-Tex repair centers so the guys out there repair in Zurich are, are doing that um the guys in Scotland are a Gore repair center um we're not a certified Gore repair center, but we are a brand who is Gore-Tex licensed. So we are able to uh, repair all those garments and everyone's looking at it with different lenses. You know, the big one we get all the time is also alterations. Like people want, say you're, you know, a big guy and you've got, you know, short legs and our shorts are too long for you or something. We don't make them in size lengths. You know, how can I get those alters? We get those questions all the time. Um, people want the garment, but they want to make, you know, take a couple inches off of it or they want to do something with it. So, um, you know, I don't know how Urs started outdoor repair, but you know, he's got an amazing shop and his, his business has exploded over the years. Uh, it would be a great place actually you should visit cause they're, they should just I be, will. Uh, I'm going to ask you for the contact in private. I would yeah. love to go there and visit. Yeah. Yeah. He's a, he's a great guy and, um, you know, um, does things, you know, I think he, when we were at Arctic, which is how I met him, I think he came in like lived at in vancouver for a few months and just like went to the factory and learned and you know we at the time we were really desperate for a repair center uh in europe like someone who was more centralized and so he kind of took that on and grew that business and he also has like a, a backpack brand that he does for i think the swiss military and things like that he's actually producing garments or producing backpacks and things like that so really interesting guy and um you know knows all the tricks and how to repair and i could probably learn stuff from him now versus the other way around uh and so that's super cool to see people um doing just amazing things and and being really good at their craft and so those people uh who are working in these centers you know they have uh fixed prices for certain things if you went in and said i want to repair my zipper on an old garment and i think you know for your listeners regardless of what brand you wear these these repair centers they'll repair old garments if you've got a closet full of old garments um, they'll repair them and, you know, you can tell them, wow. Hey, I'm, I don't want to spend a ton on this or, you know, my budget for this garment is this. And they'll say, okay, well, here's what we can do. And here's what we can't do for that price. So they're willing to work with you on prices. Um, sometimes, you know, things like center front zipper on a waterproof breathable jacket. I mean, that's a big repair. You know, it, it it's going to take a bunch of time to do. You've got to, get a little heat irons in there and you got to delaminate all the tape. Then you get to pick off all the adhesive. Then you got to pick all the thread. Once you can get at the thread, then you've got to take the zippers out without damaging the fabric. Then you've got to reinstall it. Then you've got to glue it back in place. Then you've got to put tape on the back. I mean, it's a process to do that kind of thing. So, um, those are tricky in some cases. So, um, yeah, Patagonia has got a great, uh, repair center where they'll, I think they actually repair 
garments that aren't Patagonia garments as well. Uh, okay. And I believe it's in Reno. And I, um, I was talking to a good friend who works there a few weeks ago and he was telling me just how, how large and, um, full on that center is, uh, where they repair garments as well. And that's, that's, uh, you know, good on them to have such an internal investment. And those are all, I don't even think that's a contract facility. I think they actually own it. You know, Arcteryx, wow. for example, uh, does all of their warranty repairs, um, in North America at their own factory in, in Burnaby. So, uh, and they've been doing that since the beginning. Uh, so they have a huge center there and those kind of get put back into the factory that, you know, built a lot of those garments in the first place. Um, you know, I don't know what the percentage of sales that that, you know, coming from that factory is it, you know, the company growing so aggressively, uh, you know, when I was there seven years ago, it was probably 10% of the garments were made at that factory in Burnaby. Uh, and now I'd say it's probably 1%, you know, ish because oh, wow. their volume is great. They're probably making more garments than they've ever made before at that factory. Um, but it's probably, uh, grown, grown, their business has grown so much that, uh, the percentage has shrunken. So yeah, and there's yeah. lots of people doing those doing those things around the world uh, and trying to um, you know, trying to keep garments out there, and it's in everyone's best interest, uh, not just not just the consumers. It's in the brand's best interest. So I love it when you see a seven mesh product that's like well worn, and someone's selling it, you know, online. They're like selling it on Facebook, or they're selling it wherever, and they're like a used garment, and they're like it's still in good shape after so many years of riding. And they're like, hey, love this garment, but you know. I got fat, so I had to replace it, or I, I wanted to buy a new one finally, or whatever. But it's still, it's still in great shape. If anyone wants it, and they're selling it, and you know, and people are, you know, if it's good quality, people are people are keen to do that, and that's amazing. You know, that's keeping, um, getting more garments out there, and it's hopefully giving someone a positive experience, and getting someone out there riding their bike. I have another question that I want to ask you, and it's a question about price. We said all the process that you're putting on prototyping prototyping sorry your garments then we have the durability of your garments because they are actually things that you check and you choose really accurately everything that needs to be there and all the material and everything then we have also the possibility of repairing those things so there is a huge part of the development, research and development on that, then on the production as well. Yeah. Uh, even if also here I'm going to um, take the character of the uh, devil's advocate and say, okay, but you are also producing in China like everybody else. Why you are putting this price tag on this thing? But as we were saying, research and development, materials, production and reparability. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. How much does it impact on the price, even considering the advocate, the devil's advocate talk that I just made there? Because yeah. from, yeah. No, good good question. Um, I think that um, the irony of the situation is that, you know, the warranty repairs, the R&D, all that work that happens, that actually doesn't cost the consumer anything. So that's just built into like the cost of us running a business. You know, that's all just mm -hmm. like part of, part of the deal. Um, costing is, you know, based off of, we, you know, we go to a factory, the materials cost X, the labor costs Y, obviously people need to get a fair wage. Um, labor prices are, you know, expensive and hopefully getting more expensive around the world. Cause that just makes, you know, working conditions even better. And, um, you know, it gives people access to things they couldn't have before. And that, that's a good thing, not a bad Absolutely. thing. So, Absolutely. um, 
you know, people are chasing, always chasing lower wage everywhere. And, and I think obviously you, you can't make things crazy expensive. Otherwise we wouldn't, we wouldn't be able to have a business. People wouldn't buy them, but at the same time, um, yeah, that's a, that's a huge component is, is just making sure that they're working at the, with the right partners that we know and trust, uh, to do, to do good work and pay people really great wages, um, and great facilities. And so that's a big one. Um, you know, we, when we kind of look at a bill of material, so we get a costing from, uh, our, our partner ma- manufacturer, right. And so that'll have a labor component. Uh, it'll have like a, a, you know, surcharges for fabric handling, things like that. It'll have all the fabric costs broken down by how much we use. And then we have a basic equation, um, for a markup on that of how much money we need to make. Uh, and typically, you know, that's in apparel, that's like, just to give you the full disclosure, that's like between 45 and, you know, 55%. Some items are a little bit more and some items are a little bit less. That's not a huge markup uh, when you consider the costs uh, associated with that. And then we sell obviously to stores and then the stores have to put a markup on it as well. And they'll put, you know, whatever the appropriate MSRP is on, on the particular item. So, the price that we see at the end of the day is a direct correlation for what the item costs period okay so it's super it's like we have really open costing with our factory where we can look at a cost sheet we can talk about it we can say we'll i doubt we will ever be in a scenario where or at least i hope we're never in a scenario where we're like no we just have to make it cheaper it just has to be cheaper from the factory level it's like if the cost sheet's open i know exactly what the usage is and that doesn't lie I know exactly what the labor cost is and it's most cases it's timed labor. So it's really fair, um, you know, by the operations that it takes to build the garment. That's how the worker ultimately gets paid. So why would, I'm not going to argue and say, no, it takes less time to make. In some cases, you know, if you don't have an honest and open relationship with your factory, maybe they are adding more labor to it, Uh, you know, and maybe it isn't fair, but, you know, I think that it's really important. That's why we have open cost sheets. So we can, we can have that conversation with them and we can, we can walk through those bill of materials and you can go, Hey, this looks high. Can you tell me why? And they'll be like, Oh, well, this operation is a real pain to do. And it takes this many more minutes to do it. And I'll be like, Oh, well, we can fix that. And we'll go back to the drawing board and modify it to make it easier to make, you know, or whatever that is. And so, you know, that's why this feedback loop is really important. So, you know, ultimately you can work out the costing. There are companies out there. Uh, and I know that this is actually more common actually in the bike, in the bike components industry and, and saddles and things like that, where, you know, the super sport, really lightweight material, blah, 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 in some cases actually cheaper to produce than the base model saddles and the the margins will be much much higher from the brand you know they'll have like an 80 80 margin say on a saddle and they'll have like a 40 percent margin on a on a smaller saddle because it's the super duper one they can charge more for it and mm. so you know we don't do that and that's that is very uncommon in the apparel industry in general um i'd be surprised and so, you know when you get into like luxury goods and things then I think that changes a little bit when you start getting into like brands for brand's sake. Um, but most times it just is what it is. So, you know, that goes back to your question of like, you know, I think there was a question from your good friend, Max, where about like a customer's like, well, I can get a pair of bibs for $30 on Amazon. How's that work? I'm like, well, it, it is, you know, it is what it is, you know, like you a, pay what you get, you pay what you get. You know, and and you get what you pay for, and um, you know, I know how much the foams cost, and I know I know how much they, how hard they are to produce to get the quality we're looking for, 
and you do that math and I know how much the margins are for fabric vendors and they're not high. You know, those guys are, those, like I said before, they're hurting right now because everyone dropped their POs and canceled their business. And they, you know, they're sitting on the raw materials in a lot of cases. So the industry is in a tough spot. You know, COVID's, COVID's thrown everyone into a, a bit of a, uh, no one knows what to do, you know, on a material side. And so demand has gone up, but people canceled POs and, and put materials back and filled volume at factories with other things. And that's also causing shortages around the world is mm-hmm. the uncertainty. So I would say that, you know, on a seven mesh product, we use really nice materials and whether they cost, you know, we have some materials that are down as low as $3 and 50 cents a meter kind of thing, you know, for really simple things, uh, upwards of, uh, $35, $40 a meter. And so, you know, if it, if a Gore-Tex jacket, for example, has a usage of, uh, you know, 1.8 or 2.2, if you got a hood on there, you know, per meter, you know, uh, of usage per yard, you know, 1.8 meters, then, then, uh, you can do the math on that of the base material, plus all the trims and adhesives and tapes, which cost a lot, you know, there's, uh, four meters of seam tape and each meter of seam tape is 90 cents. And then you do the math on that. Uh, that's up pretty fast to, if you want to make really nice garments. So, and then you got to pay people, like I said, a fair wage and, uh, you have to, I don't want people rushing on a, a garment and going crazy. I want them to do the speed they should do to get the right quality. The last thing I want is a garment that gets messed up and has to go into a landfill during that process. So, um, yeah, it's, it's simple math. It's open costing. It's honesty amongst, uh, business colleagues. Um, it's just good, a good way of doing business. And ultimately the costing is what the costing is. And, uh, you know, that's not, that's totally the same for anywhere I've worked in the apparel industry. Um, I know some people have closed costings where they just look for, uh, the vendor just sends a price Okay. and they go, yeah, that works. We can sell it for that much. And you don't know, and they don't want to know any of the details in between. They're just like, they're just like, yeah, we can sell it or we can't, or, Hey, could you do it a little lower? And they're like, well, I could, if your volume was higher or whatever that is, and you work it out. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you work with, if you work with good people uh, and you have open costings, uh, everyone's just informed. It, it doesn't, uh, we very rarely have to negotiate anything because it's okay. all super clear. That's awesome. So it's everything is open. You have there your, uh, your tag list and your teaser your price list and whatever. And then, yeah. Totally. It's a, it's a, a spade is a spade. We know exactly what we're looking at. And so today, and, uh, and that so far has, has worked out really well for us. And I think we'll probably, you know, Callum kind of takes care of the costume, but I think he would probably be, uh, you know, uh, I don't think he'd do it any other way. Uh, open, honest costing is, is the, that's his, that's his MO. He's, that's, that's uh, what he wants to see and that's what he wants to do. And I totally support him hundred percent. Yeah. And what about the, the R and D? So the research and development of that is yeah, also I mean, just, an impact. Yeah. I mean, it costs money to do those kind of things. And, um, uh, generally speaking, um, none of that cost is really amortized in our products. So, um, obviously you have to make a successful, you know, I know that the shoe industry, for example, will amortize tooling costs into the cost of their shoes. Um, apparel is quite different. You know, we don't have these, uh, well, we do have tool costs, you know, like chamois or we use, you know, chamois, we partner with elastic interface for some things, some things we make our own tooling, uh, for, um, you know, that costs money, but that's just, that's an overhead expense for the most part for us. Uh, that doesn't get amortized into the product. Um, you're trying to keep the price where the price is. And ultimately you want to have, 
you know, that be price competitive with those items built into your business costs. So maybe that limits what we can do. Maybe we should start amortizing it and jack the prices up a little bit and I could do more crazy stuff, but uh, I don't think that's the way that we want to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I can see completely the point. No, but yeah, it's super, super fascinating also. That's something that actually runs and bugs my mind all the time. And that's a problem that I have on my side. I work in marketing. Or at least I'm a marketing professional. Yeah. And everybody, the thing that I hate the most is people that are coming and saying, uh, yeah, you know, Nike costs so much just because you are paying uh, LeBron's sponsorship or yeah. whoever is there, whatever. I don't think that it's like this because actually all the sponsorship that they are pay, you are paying, actually that Nike is paying for LeBron is, more, uh, is actually getting back from the level and the number of things or shoes or whatever it is that they're selling more so all the costs that you are paying there you are paying of course all the professional side that they have all the the material that they have and whatever stop putting together you are paying that because of the brand you are paying that because this brand is positioned there you are paying that because of the sponsoring money that they are paying as you were saying of course if you're going to luxury is another play is another field is completely another field but here we are talking about stuff that we are using every day on the bike so okay. it's about the material how good it is how premium it is how long lasting it is and how much work you have to put on making the perfect garment that lasts long and has a way great quality totally yeah no yeah 100 percent. so I, I think it's a really difficult problem people end up in and you know um i don't know much about the shoe industry in that regard but um you know i know there's there's definitely hidden costs in all shoes with um you know tooling and things like that but um you know the shoe industry i think is going to have to make a they'll have to make some major changes in the next decade mm. or so as far as sort of how they're producing gar- how they're producing shoes you know the level of toxicity in shoe production is wild uh you know and there's a lot of people working on it because they know how big of a problem it is um with all the adhesives and um the way they work so but yeah i, I think sponsorship and things like that are you know they cost they cost money to sponsor people and you want to help people do what they're good at um, you know, in, in cycling, obviously, you know, if you're going to sponsor a pro team, you got to be a big brand and you got to be able to support that. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know where that money comes from. We don't have, we don't have that quite of a big marketing budget. <laughs> okay. Okay. No, yeah. Yeah, okay. So I think, you know, our, we're still a pretty small, pretty small company, but, um, you know, uh, right now we have some ambassadors that are, you know, we, we pay money to, but that's mostly to support their habits you know, and let them do what they want to do. Everyone's going to make a living. Uh, we're not, uh, nobody's getting rich off having a seven mesh sponsorship, uh, right now. And it probably never will be, to be honest. Uh, people, people, you know, people want good gear and, and we're happy to support them, uh, when they're doing that. Uh, we want them to, uh, do their activities and be able to do them more comfortable. And ultimately at the end of the day, that's what we're focused on. And I don't know if we'll ever be a, a big, um, brand we're sponsoring uh huge names things like that we've got a few riders that um uh like remy metallier who's a you know really well-known uh, youtube sensation you know uh mountain biker <laughs> i hate to say even say the word youtube sensation but um he's become more of a youtube sensation as he's doing more filming here in squamish and you know love working with remy and you know he just kind of came to us and said he's like i'm getting wet out there i don't have a i don't have a jacket i need a jacket and we're like, you know, through one of the girls who works with us was like, I was talking to Remy, you know, at the supermarket. And he said he, 
really needs a jacket would love, you know, love some help. And we're like, we'd like to help you. So, you know, uh, if people, people want to stay dry, want to be more comfortable on the bike, uh, want to get out and do those adventures and, uh, and, uh, stay out a little longer and be a little more comfortable, man, that is what we're all about. So, you know, I, I kind of love the old, uh, also logo or there's thing about sponsor yourself. I think it couldn't be more, more true. Um, people, people really need to, uh, you know, uh, if they need the gear to do to do what they're doing, uh, then we want to help them do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. Uh, this was something that I don't know. I always see in the ASOS uh, headline like sponsoring yourself a bit more on the on the side of be like a pro. But yeah, for sure. True, true enough. It's a bit yeah. more. It's a bit more posh, let's say, yeah, in this yeah, direction. Sure. But this is actually my attitude on that. But I can see completely your point. Yeah. Um, what I want to ask you, so I think that actually, yes, we went through a lot of super cool thing, but I need to go with you on two more questions if we have time. Yeah, we're the tight first on time, one... but just, just let you know, but so we'll run through them fast. Okay. Yeah. Uh, we can do something like three minutes or if we want, we can keep the spectacled beer conservation society <laughs> on a side for another interview, but tell me a three for what, because this actually hit completely my mind because actually I know that Canada is a bear uh, country. Yeah. Uh, you are part of this association that is South America, by the yeah, way. So, so it's uh, conservation. Story, of um, my wife is a bear biologist. So, uh, oh. yeah. So she uh, did her master's on um, black bears uh, here in Canada and had done a bunch of work on them. But I had always, since I met her, um, had always said, I'd love to work on spectacle bears in South America or Andean bears, as they're known sort of scientifically. Um, and, you know, from day one, since I met her, she's always said that. And um, anyway, uh, in 2000 and geez, I don't even know what year, 2005, 2004, somewhere in there. She just she sort of set off, finished her master's, and set off uh, to South America to to find a basically to find these bears because they're very they're probably the least um, studied, least known bears in the world, uh, and had the adventure of her life and basically found this interesting bear population and started studying them in northern Peru uh, and started this organization. So we've been, um, you know, I, I mean I'm heavily involved in the organization from making sure they got the right equipment to fundraising to all the different things. And it's grown into uh, quite an interesting organization over the past, uh, you know, 15 years or so. Uh, and uh, now they've got, um, I want to say 50 people working on this project down in Peru. Uh, we have uh, a felted ornament program with a community outreach program where these women are empowered to build, you know, get, earn their own incomes and ultimately that helps conservation partnering with communities and protecting land. Um, got, you know, she's got some really long-term goals as the organization to protect uh, huge tracts of, of uh, wild lands in, uh, in Peru. And they're already on, on road to purchasing a lot of those right now. And we work um, jointly with a, a large uh, wildlife partner organization called wildlife conservation network. It's a conservation organization started by a philanthropist in, um, San Francisco, a guy named Charlie Knowles, and fantastic organization um, who's you know put hundreds of millions of dollars into wildlife conservation and preserving wild lands. And so we're one of their partner organizations. We work with them uh, on a regular basis on fundraising. You know they've got an amazing uh, donor base that we work with. You know one on one. They have this sort of entrepreneurial model where the conservationists talk directly with the donors and work with them to try to make things happen so we've got an amazing group of uh, supporters and donors around the world that are 
funneling, you know, millions of dollars into different projects around the globe, uh, you know, from elephants to Africa, in Africa to, you know, whale sharks to um, uh, Andean cats in South America to Okapi, you know, in the Congo, uh, you know, to lions in Africa. There's uh, uh, amazing projects. And so by protecting these sort of iconic species you're protecting a much broader you know range of land underneath them and bears are so true you know if you protected all eight bear species in the world uh you'd protect about 80 percent of the planet you know so that's yeah. a, there's some amazing statistics about how that works so you know um yeah just really 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 cool stuff coming out of that um and so we we try to blend those two things i mean obviously i'm working pretty hard seven mesh as well um you know uh, the irony is, you know, when we started, I mean, we've been working on uh, Spectacle Pair or SBC a, a lot longer um, than I've been working on SubMesh and, and working on those problems. So, uh, you know, it's it's a super treat to be, you know, in the high mountains there in the field and, and uh, you know, out with those guys as much as I can be. Um, obviously, when I'm not, uh, you know, running this business with my, my two friends. <laughs> That's great. Well, I will actually... Um try to steal you something like a promise let's have another talk about that soon it's gonna be your wife and you and my girlfriend and i because my girlfriend is a biologist as well oh, cool. so probably we can set up stuff together and maybe i can convince her to move to north america or to south america she loves peru she went there and she got in love there so we can uh, do cool. that. that's very cool i have the last thing uh for yep. you and is let's talk about the future you actually slightly talked about stuff that you are planning that are going to go out soon in the market from 7Mesh. But what are you planning for in 7Mesh? Yeah, Which I mean, so we, next we've world? got a, a lot of different things planned. Um, we've been working on um, sort of stre new stretch technologies for, you know, kind of give you a, a vague thing. And, and that's been really interesting. Um, trying to, uh, you know, build more comfort into outerwear um insulation and more insulation with sort of high perm so high air perm you know i, I kind of relate um high air movement high air perm is one of the most influential factors in how a garment feels and how it how it's uh, able to work non non-membrane fabrics of course um and so we've been doing some really interesting work on that and i'm excited you know excited for the next season and the season after to see where that goes and you know just trying to solve those problems of how to make people more comfortable on the bike basically you know um, awesome. we got kind of swirled we always get squirreled away on different projects of like oh maybe we'll make some armor or maybe we'll do this maybe we'll do that you know like we're we're all over the map um, as far as our ideas. And then I always kind of like go, no, we're still got so much work to do in our current wheelhouse of uh, expertise. So we're honestly, uh, we're just focused on, on making that happen and, and sort of um, chipping away at it incrementally. That's great. That's yeah. great. Well, Ian, thanks really a lot for our talk today. It was super inspiring. And finally, I got to talk with somebody that really puts the values of, as well as I was saying, um, durability and repairing and everything into really the bigger scene of the sustainability instead of just dropping around the classic keywords well, of yeah, thanks. planting trees and stuff. It's great, really. It's really great to talk with people so passionate like you, especially about bears, as well about bears. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much, <laughs> Stefano. It was great talking to you. And I think, um, you know, um, we're going to keep doing what we're doing. And hopefully over time on the sustainability side, people... Uh, 
you know, we work with vendors and we try to, we're building, it's building blocks. So uh, we're, we're starting and uh, hopefully we'll all get there into a great spot. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Thanks so much. Thank you, man. And yes, have a great day. Thanks. You too. Ciao. And yes, I truly believe that I need to sit down with Jan again and uh, talk about the bears because it was really fascinating. And I think that I really would need to go to the British Columbia to Canada and go and ride a bit the bike, bicycle there because I think it's super amazing. I just need to do it. Hopefully, I think, I'm I not hope so. I really believe that you actually enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed it producing it and editing and putting it live so remember that you can just give me some support by sharing it with your best friends as well or whoever you think can be interested to that or comment rate subscribe to apple Podcasts, google Podcasts, and spotify just look for broom wagon there and do it and if you want also to support me down there uh, you will find a link to coffee and if you want to contribute a bit on all the expenses that I have on putting together this amazing content. If I inspire you or whatever, something like this, you know that you can do it. The coffee link is down in the episode's note. Last thing that I want to say is a tip about Komoot. We supporting, gladly supporting this production of this year. Well, talking about Komoot, I just want to say that they went live with an amazing feature that is the live tracking for family and friends of your rides if you are a premium user basically just you can share a link with whoever uh, you want and you can actually set it up also automatically and everybody will know where you are geographically at the moment how is the level of the battery of your phone and that's super important so you don't need to be worried if something is happening and something like you don't hear from somebody for a bit just maybe just the phone is empty as drained out of battery and that's why you're not talking with them and also on the other side you have also an estimated time 88 estimated time of arrival uh, of the person that shared with you the track you can have it if you are a premium uh, user of Komoot and I think that this is a great idea because actually can keep all the people around you a bit more relaxed while you are outside exploring is another tool that we can use for exploring our favorite chunk of the world thanks to Komoot and remember that you can continue listening to these regular episodes of the broom wagon every tuesday around 12 o'clock or whenever you want saying that i would say that i will talk to you next week bye people